This is where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. The Globe and Mail has published an article wanting people to be aware of the new laws in 2023 and how they will affect Canadians. Now, Matt and I, way ahead of the Globe and Mail, have already covered most of the stories and the laws in the article because we're ahead of the curve. However, there were two particularly piece, two particular parts of the article that have not been mentioned on our podcast. So we figured you'd want to hear the truth from us and not some other leftist legacy media source. Finally, in what can be called only a, a miscarriage of justice, two Toronto General Hospital security guards charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence regarding the death of Stephanie Warner have been dismissed. This despite clear evidence of their guilt, which we're going to highlight for you. Now that the charges have been dropped, Video evidence has come out highlighting the tragedy of this event. Here's my hot take. The judge should resign. Those guards should be found guilty. As I was thinking about this particular story, my mind went to Psalm 94. It says this, verses 20 to 23. Can wicked rulers or judges be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. One can only hope. It's January 19th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is the Liberty Dispatch. Welcome to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. As always, we're, we're so excited that you joined us on the program today. And we would encourage you to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us get our content out to more people on the various platforms that we are on. We are on a wonderful podcast network with our friends over at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. That's flfnetwork.com. Be sure to go over there and check that out, as well as go over and get all our content at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network app, which you can get on your Google Play or your Apple App Store as well. And all our content you can check out over at libertycoalitioncanada.com. That's libertycoalitioncanada.com. You're definitely going to want to make yourself more familiar with that website because we're going to have some wonderfully cool things happening this year, Lord willing. So go over to libertycoalitioncanada.com today to check out all that we have going on there as well as while you're over there be sure to subscribe uh, to our emailing list at the bottom of the page but also we would ask that you would prayerfully consider leaving um, a donation there over on the page it helps us continue to grow as an institution to to fight and legally advocate for for individuals like our friend Josh Alexander in the courts. It helps us continue to do initiatives like Biblical Sexuality Sunday, which we just took part of in which is with a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pastors across the globe. And it also helps us continue to grow our news and analysis arm of the Liberty Coalition with programs like the Liberty Dispatch. So please go over there, check it out, donate. And if you earmark your donation to news and analysis through the Christian week. You can get yourself a charitable tax uh, 
receipt as well. So definitely go over there, do that. And then I just want to highlight for you, we've been saying if you want to reach out to us directly, go to info at libertycoalitioncanada.com. That has changed. It's now mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. That's mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. So reach out to us directly at mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. I can't stress that change enough. It's just going to help streamline the process of us responding to your emails and us getting the proper emails going to the right people so then we can respond in a timely manner. So please uh, just note the change on that as well. So we're going to be highlighting the Globe and Mail article, but what we want to hear from you is check the Globe and Mail article, Click the link and read all the different things they mention. We want to hear from you in the mailbag. What is the one piece of legislation you are most looking forward to in 2023? And what is the one you are least looking forward to in 2023? So make sure to let us know that mailbag at libertycoalitioncanada.com. And before we get into that story, we have to talk about our fuel for freedom. Do you know that you can purchase freshly roasted coffee that will also support Liberty at the same time? Resistance Coffee Company is a Canadian coffee roastery that gives a portion of every sale to organizations fighting for the constitutional freedoms of Canadians. Resistance Coffee is a small batch roastery, which ensures you are never drinking old and stale coffee like you find at grocery stores. Get freshly roasted, specialty-grade coffee delivered to your door as often as you want it, and enjoy knowing that your money isn't funding the leftist causes you despise. Drink great coffee and support Liberty Coalition Canada by visiting resistancecoffee.com slash LCC today. And when you use that slash LCC, you will get 10% off of your first purchase, including mugs and apparel. Tell your friends and family... Get them drinking some fuel for freedom as well. That's resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. And make sure you keep using that after your first purchase so that they know that we sent you. So let's get into this story. We're not going to highlight the whole article. As I said in the lead-in, essentially all the stories we've covered already. Bill C-11, Bill C-21. We've talked about the changes coming to the CRA with regards to CPP and EI. So you're already informed because of us, but go read this article. And again, think about legislation that you like and that you hate, and you might end up hating all of it. That's fair. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to highlight- Wouldn't be surprising given our current context. Wouldn't be surprised at all. (laughs) There are two things in the article that we haven't mentioned. One, actually, Matt and I have been mulling over for at least a week or so, thinking through when we wanted to bring it out. But this article Mm -hmm. came at a good time, so we'll do it here. And then the other one is the ongoing saga of the slow, which has become the full-on, full-speed descent into communism in Canada. And so we'll, we'll deal with that one first. And this is provincial minimum wage increases coming in 2023. Now, we've linked to the individual provinces So you Mm -hmm. can see from their own websites what we're dealing with. I'm just going to read them out and then we're going to give comment. Okay, so Nova Scotia. And by the way, Matt Matt brought this up before we started filming. You're going to notice a trend. (laughs) You're going to notice a trend in terms of not only the location of a lot of these provinces, but as Matt will bring up shortly, what else about these provinces is familiar (laughs) or do they have in common? He's just, he's chomping at the bit. So I'll just give you the number. (laughs) Uh, In Nova Scotia, there will be an increase of 70 cents on April 1st, bringing the minimum wage up to $14.30. And then on October 1st, another increase of 35 cents. So the minimum wage will be $14.65. In Manitoba, on April 1st, there will be an increase of 65 cents, bringing up the minimum wage to $14.15. And then as of October 1st, the minimum wage goes up to $15.00. I'll say here, by the way, these provinces all agree on the dates, by the way. They all agree April 1st and October 1st. Now, that could just be because there's some financial thing and it works out that way. Or it could be that all of the socialists are working in tandem in the same way that all the countries around the world have the same 2030 and 2050 goals because they've received messaging from the WEF. You, you can decide for that. Saskatchewan. 
So it will be going from $13 to $14, effective October 1st. PEI, an 80 cent increase that happened on January 1st of this year, bringing the minimum wage up to $14.50. And then another 50 cents on October 1st, bringing it up to $15. Then last, Newfoundland and Labrador, there's an 80 cent increase on April 1st to $14.50. And then on October 1st, 50 cents to $15. So these five provinces will have a $15 minimum wage as of October 1st this year. Matt, talk to us about minimum wage. Talk Ugh. to us about how how wonderful and equitable it is and, and how much TGC will be writing articles about how the minimum wage increase along with getting rid of your gas stove and taking the jab is loving your neighbor. I can just see these articles coming out. But uh, tell us a little bit about minimum wage, why it's godless, and uh, and what it is that we see in common about a lot of these provinces mentioned. Yeah, so we'll notice a trend that uh, the the provinces that you have mentioned, Andrew, are um, very much the same province provinces who are in the process as we mentioned on our last program of trying to institute some sort of universal basic income in their provinces. And it's interesting to note that these provinces, Nova Scotia, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, PEI, and Newfoundland and Labrador are literally some of the cheapest provinces in the entire country to live. In fact, all these provinces are are in the top five of the cheapest places to live in Canada. And, you know, there's a huge debate going down uh, south uh, with $15 minimum wage and wanting to federally mandate that on people. And for all intents and purposes, with maybe the exception, it looks like, of Nova Scotia now, we have a $15 labor cost floor in Canada for wages. And the 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 part of minimum wage that is so dicey is it's again just like universal basic income it's seen as a welfare program it's seen as loving your neighbor like yourself but it has insidious things that lay beneath the surface mainly i think the most insidious is that the it's a priced floor is essentially what um what we have with government doing is they're fixing a price floor for the cost of labor and they're entering into the labor market and the economy in such a way that, that says this uh, one hour of labor cannot be um, sold for anything less than whatever the price of the minimum wages. So that is the government interjecting itself between the laborer who's trying to sell their labor on the free market and the uh, business owner, uh, the employer, what have you. So again, we do not in our country, so long as minimum wage laws exist, have a free market um, where, where laborers are able to sell their skills on a free market apart from coercion by the government. Now, the the sad part about the minimum wage and many people have brought this uh, out is it doesn't actually change the the demand for a product the the cost of creating that product um but if you artificially in, increase that labor um what it does is it artificially increases labor costs so it actually makes the economy less efficient, it drives up the cost of living because those costs get reflected ultimately in the final price of the goods. So unless if the government's going to come in and then say, well, despite these increases in labor uh, costs, um, businesses cannot increase their, their costs of doing businesses, which would then be price more price fixing in the economy. What you're seeing is more and more uh, increase in price adjustments. So you get price inflation. Um, so the cost of living really takes into account the, the, the floor here in the minimum wage. And then what you're actually seeing is 
essentially by the government artificially setting the the labor floor at $15 an hour, it now is not in the company's best interest to hire employees who are incapable based off of, you know, lack of skills, lack of experience to put out that amount of labor an hour. So that's where country er, um, companies are going to look to to avoid hiring people they're going to look to uh to automation to do that which um employees were going to do because you know the the cost of labor is going up and up and up and we're talking you know just a 10 15 percent increase in in labor costs can cost like a business we're talking depending on how many employees they have 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. That's just for like one restaurant I'm talking about. It, dollars in wage increase. We're seeing astronomical increases to 70 cents to you know 35 plus more cents on top of that. So we're seeing a dollar 5 increase when it comes to Nova Scotia. This is this is going to cost businesses tons and tons of money during a recession during the 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 moment in the economy where businesses are already having to take austerity measures this is so ill-timed and ill-advised that it's really really dangerous and the fact of the matter is again just as ubi is not going to create a perverse in, uh, incentive structure and is not going to lead to the the human flourishing that these utopian idiots think it's going to the fact of the matter is minimum wage has not actually um, led to the flourishing that many of its proponents are. It's it's anti-economic and any economist understands that it's folly uh, if they're being honest, but it's seen as a you know charity and a good effort and loving your neighbor. But what it always ends up doing is it ends up alienating those who are the lowest down on the labor skill market. Those are the first people to lose their jobs. People with disabilities, they end up losing their jobs because they cannot put out the the requisite um, effort and production from an employee that the, the company would require at that increased wage labor point. And that's why, though it seems altruistic, just as the U UBI on the face of it seems altruistic, it is anything but that, Andrew. And um, that is the concern of it, is like... <laughs> It could be our intention to help people, but when we're talking about ethics, when we're talking about what what is morally right to do, intention is not the only aspect of what's ethical. It's actually the right – you have to have the right motive, which is love. You have have to have the um, the right action and the right standard, and that's Andrew where I'm afraid this falls short as far as the Christians concerned too, because we have the, the par parable of uh, the workers in the field, the the manager who's managing his field hires um, workers to work through the day, and then at the end of the day based off the individual free contract that he made with all those workers and the agreement that they came up, came to, he paid them what they agreed to. So not only is that violated with the state interjecting itself into that, what should be a private relationship, it's now a public relationship, um, but it also violates the, the base principle that the manager corrects the ungrateful uh, workers for when they accuse him of, hey, I was working all day and I got paid the same amount. He's like, hey, can I not do what is what I have agreed to with what is mine, it, it violates that basic Christian principle uh, of economics that's in that parable. Now, that's obviously, it's a parable that has a, a, a wider, broader, more important spiritual meaning, but it actually informs us of how to approach these economic systems as well, Andrew. So, 
again, you have to have the right motive. So yes, maybe the motives to love one's neighbor, but if you have the, if you're violative of the standard and if you don't have the right action, that despite all the ooey gooey warm feelings, it, it's not a good thing to do. It's a wrong thing to do. And we have to understand that. And the fact of the matter is, Andrew, we're way down the line of minimum wages being put in place. And, and it hasn't fixed things. The, the wage gap is worse today than it has been, you know, in recent history. We're, we have governments literally calling for communism to fix the problem. And again, this ill-timed minimum wage increase is very, very, um, it can be disastrous to small businesses across this nation who are not the Amazons. Again, this is da more dangerous to small businesses than it is to Walmart. Walmart can absorb these prices, but what you're going to do is you're going to put the mom and pop stores out of business at the worst time. <laughs> it, this is happening at the during a recession after the government foolishly shut down our economy for two years. This is going to cripple small businesses businesses. And that's why this is not loving. Um, based on all those things that I laid out, I, I, I'm going to link in the description some more reading material as it pertains to the minimum wage so you can kind of do a deep dive into that if you want. Because again, it's on the face of it. It sounds like a good thing. It just has disastrous real life income or uh, uh, real life impact uh, when it's actually put in place. So that's why I don't actually think it is ill-timed for, for the reason you just stated there because it's curious that much of the decisions that have been made by federal, provincial, and municipal governments over the last three years have been a crushing blow to the small and independent business and have been a rather lucrative gain for the big business. So I, I don't know if I can even say that this is misguided altruism. This looks like another play to crush the independent, small business, entrepreneurial, who by nature is more conservative leaning, the person who takes responsibility for themselves, who works hard, who produces, who's not a big fan of leftist politics and leftist legislation. That's the one who's hurt and by who, this. And who most. takes risk, right? Who actually yes. takes financial risk. Um which it's always funny, progressives style themselves as those people who are like adventurous and risky and they, they like to push the barriers. But when it comes to economics, it's generally people who are more conservative, who are um, trying to, as entrepreneurs, look at the labor market, kind of anticipate its needs and, the, or needs and then take the risk to ensure that they're providing the necessary service. And, you know, so many progressives tend to end up in, you know, uh, jobs in the service sector or, you know, yeah, whatever. But it's an interesting point, Andrew. Yeah. And I mean, it's th this is the one who's going to be hurt by this and people who people who take risks, people who are entrepreneurs, people who are, take responsibility for themselves are people who are not compliant, who are not generally needy for the government to save them. These are people who don't want the handout, who won't be voting for these policies. So it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. curious that the ones who will be most affected by this are the ones who by and large would not be in support of these inflated government policies and who won't be on the take. So it, it seems a little bit more insidious than it appears at, at the front of it. And yeah, other, I mean, I mean if, if you're a Marxist that wants to disrupt and dismantle uh, the capitalist society, all these inane experiments and these ill-timed, uh, foolish economic uh, you know, policies, I mean, you can't... You can't do it any better. Um, now they cloak it in all in altruistic language, but uh, unfortunately, the case is this is going to be uh, dangerous and harmful to to small businesses across this nation. Yeah, and it, it also highlights something that we've seen in the last couple of years that we've we've taken for granted. Maybe that's not the right phrase. We've we've been unaware at just how involved the state is in our daily affairs. Mm -hmm. And it caused us to rethink things more. So minimum wage and minimum wage laws is some, something that we've just assumed or we've presupposed. It's just how we're supposed to operate. 
And I think seeing the last number of years unfold have made us ask questions like what other things yeah. are there that we need to question whether we're it's told we're good, but system, yeah. whether it's minimum wage laws, people mm -hmm. have had to rethink even things like fire code issues, mm -hmm. right? Like, should yeah. you really withhold occupancy because someone isn't using the right drywall? Some would say yes, but I think, mm -hmm. I think my position, I think that the, the Christian position should be something like the government is allowed to make recommendations. Mm -hmm. They're allowed to recommend that, hey, in order to best meet the needs of people, you should have a, a seat, a floor of $15 an hour, <laughs> or you should space your studs 18 inches apart, or you should whatever. But it's a recommendation that I think businesses should say, we'll take it under advisement, mm -hmm. but you cannot mandate this. So that, that's something yeah. else that's that I think has come out of this yeah, is rethinking and, and of just how far they can tell us what to do under the threat of punishment or withholding occupancy or withholding business permits. Yeah. And I just want to also highlight one thing. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen what individuals, what groups are pushing for the increase of minimum wage. Quite often it's, you know, more Marxist progressive leaning politicians, but then also curiously enough, labor unions. Is there a single person employed by a labor union that makes minimum wage? Virtually no, right? So why would labor unions push so hard for an increase in the price floor of labor? Oh, because if you increase the price floor of labor, what else goes up? Every other labor cost across the market, right? Because then they're going to look at the labor floor. They're going to say, oh, these are unskilled teenagers who are getting into the workforce and we're paying them $15 an hour. Therefore, my skilled, my licensed laborer in this particular um, industry has to make way more than that. So Guess what? That's just going to drive up the, the price of everything, going to drive up a price inflation across the market. You know, labor is an important part. And I mean, there's even sorted things in the history of minimum wage that really point to its kind of racist uh, history as well, that it was kind of used to um, diminish the to aid more lazy workers in the economy and diminish, uh, especially in the American context, um, a, a company's malinvestment in labor by hiring um, those who would be generally a lot of black people in the past who would be undercutting the labor market to try and enter in at a lower skilled labor um, but then they were actually giving more productive output in the past. So it's been used for ne nefarious purposes as well. So I'll also link a description or that kind of article, that argument in the description below. So you can check that out as well. But minimum wage isn't as it seems, just like so many of these things that we talk about on a daily basis on this program, Andrew. And despite its good intentions, it is ill-advised. And especially given the current economic landscape in Canada, this policy change on behalf of these provinces might be disastrous to these eco economies that are already in dire straits. They're already in dire straits economically, as we've made mention. So anyways, those are my two thoughts on the issue. Andrew, do you have anything to add before we move along? Well, Matt, if we're talking about money, let's talk about our friends over at Bull Bitcoin. Born out of the desire to separate money from the state, Bitcoin epitomizes freedom money an uncensorable network programmed around digital scarcity, where the individual is in full control and accountable for his own property. Bull Bitcoin, Canada's most trusted Bitcoin exchange since 2013, is a 100% self-funded company led and operated by incorruptible activists for individual liberties and freedom. With Bull Bitcoin, you never run the risk of losing your money, you own the money, Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC and get started with your account creation today. Take control of your money. Mission.bullbitcoin.com 
slash LCC. The second piece of this Globe and Mail article that we wanted to address has to do with the hippies over in BC. And I'm not <laughs> totally surprised that this would be the province that would push this because between smoke and pot and independent coffee roasteries, this is right up their alley. Mm-hmm. And essentially, British Columbia will be decriminalizing hard drugs. So this is taken from another Globe and Mail article linked from the original one that we mentioned. British Columbia will become the first province in Canada to decriminalize possession of small amounts of hard drugs, such as illicit fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine after receiving an exemption from Ottawa to federal drug laws. Effective January 31st, 2023, just a couple weeks away, British Columbians 18 and older will be able to carry up to a cumulative total of 2.5 grams of these illicit substances without the risk of arrest or criminal charges. Under rules established by Ottawa and the province, police will not confiscate the drugs and people found to be in possession will not be required to seek treatment. The production, trafficking and exportation of these drugs will remain illegal, which, I mean, I don't understand how that works because can't you traffic 2.5 grams multiple times a day? I mean, it's, it's like, you can't, you can't have 10 grams of Coke on you, Mm -hmm. but you can walk back and forth from one house to the other four times with 2.5 grams of Coke and that's fine. So this seems, yeah, the, the only thing is if they, I guess if they find in your possession in a building more than, uh, that kind of allowed amount, maybe they would say, Oh, this is intent to traffic uh, because you have more than you're allowed. But sure, I trust them to do that. So yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> like just the fact that it's okay to have 2.5 grams of heroin on you—that's mm-hmm. pretty. That's pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I—it's nothing good will come of this. <laughs> no, this is not. Despite their flowery language of oh, it's because mm. you know it's. It's like you don't want back alley abortions if you outlaw abortion. You don't want you don't want people buying you don't want people buying their drugs from some shady guy, do you? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. You want it monitored by the government. So yeah, you want to have nurses and doctors at safe injection sites monitoring the use of of these dangerous terrible drugs that honestly can kill you regardless of you having <laughs> a monitored use of it you know because uh, you get to claim the tax revenue now <laughs> on the legal sale of these things that's this is why in ontario pot mm-hmm. shops are showing up everywhere mm-hmm. and the government loves it because that's a lot of tax revenue for them yeah and it's, really and it's dangerous play yeah and it's yeah it creates again a perverse moral incentive um i mean this is so I don't know in scripture if you have great examples of hard drugs being an actual crime. No, it is an absolute sin. There is no doubt about it. We're called to be sober-minded. Uh, doing hard drugs in this way is totally anti-Christian. It's totally against the spirit of you know being sober-minded, being drunk by the spirit, as in being bathed in the spirit. It's not something that is appropriate by any means it's sin and it should be avoided all all costs and that's where there's danger in this andrew um is the pedagogical function the teaching function of the civil law used to say drugs are illegal because they're dangerous they're morally bad you should not do them and if you do them we will punish you for for doing them but now that we're taking that off and that's part of the left-wing move here andrew is they're trying to say oh there's too much stigma there's too much shame involved in drugs and that's what actually puts people in these uh you know what attracts them a lot of times to using hard drugs and you know or that's what stops them from getting the help that they need and then they go into back alleys and in channels where you know they're more likely to be um hurt or uh you know they're hanging out with and associating with bad people and they're going to get in a crime all this all that but the fact of the matter is legalizing 
marijuana has not had the intended effect that so many people advocated, both in Canada and the United States, which is the decrease in in crime surrounding these uh, things, um, because especially the government regulated. I have enough friends who partake in marijuana that I don't know if I know a single one who actually goes to a, a government <laughs> weed shop and buys their weed because it's the quality is poor. The, it's way more expensive. You know, not that I'm a user, but that's these are the things that I've heard. So a lot of those kind of arguments, Andrew, are you know, in practice, they've been refuted. And there's all sorts of danger in this. Um, and it's not going to have the intended effect that they think it's going to have in fixing the problem of hard drugs in their culture, because those problems are pre-political. They're spiritual. You can't fix pre-political spiritual problems by some sort of state top-down um, laws or mandates, or the lack so thereof. We also wanted to touch on something that the city of Toronto uh, has has requested. And so this gives us a little bit more insight in, in terms of what they're thinking behind this kind of decriminalization. So this was last year. So this is early January 2022. The city of Toronto submitted what they call their quote, a request for exemption to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to allow for the possession of drugs for personal use in Toronto. So the city of Toronto going for the same thing. This is their premise, quote, there is an urgent need to change drug policy to allow for a public health response to drug use. Decriminalization of the simple possession of all drugs, along with the scale up of prevention, harm reduction and treatment services is an effective way to address the public health and public safety harms associated with substance abuse, end quote. No, it's not, that's not true. This is not an effective way. That's a, the whole premise of this mm -hmm. entire multi-hundred-page document is false. That is an yeah. incorrect premise. This is not how you deal with these things. But, Andrew, this is the type of assertion that is made with virtually no evidence in a lot of fields out, out there. Um, psychology, even education, you know, the promotion of social and emotional learning. And they're saying that there's great there, – it's showing great success, but it's – success the success that it's showing is a total different model way more concentrated not applied generally to everybody you know any success that they can point to actually doesn't apply and this is still a very very active debate they're speaking authoritatively and asserting that oh this we know this is the way to do it that's not the case and i think you're right to say hold up a second is that true? Because if it isn't, then this entire argument you're making is built on a house of cards. We also, uh, we have to actually highlight their decriminalization process, which in this document put forth by the city of Toronto is a five-step process. These are those five steps. We'll link to the document. It's a PDF. I mean, you're probably not going to read through all 150 pages or whatever, but this is the five-step process. One, operate citywide. Two, apply to all drugs. That's a, right away. Those, that, those are problems, right? Those are problems. Number three, eliminate fines or other penalties Four, determine. Now this, listen to this language, determine the definition of quote unquote personal use based on community input and five, ensure timely access to services and supports. And so they're they're going to determine the definition of personal use, which you start I mean you start playing around with that. Who knows what that means in your home? Who knows what that means? Like what what is personal use? So it's not just that the definition of personal use is still to be determined and vague, but it's based on community input. Now who knows who's in that community, whatever that means, and I'm sure you know, I'm sure that that community, whatever that community is, is full of upstanding citizens. <laughs> but at the end of the day, people who deal in illegal drugs and people who shoot up heroin on, on, on the regular are not people I want determining what personal use is as it pertains to a decriminalization 
of these mm-hmm. illegal drugs. No, no, thank you. I don't. I don't feel yeah. good about that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's kind of that, like you know, um, standpoint epistemology that's kind of embedded in in progressivism. Eh? Like, you know, the people who are going to know best at how to deal with this problem are drug users. Uh okay. Have you met a lot of drug users? <laughs> yeah, uh, not. That's usually, that might sound not a bastion of of, <laughs> of integrity and yeah. objectivity. Yeah, it's it's pretty. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's pretty, it's, pretty it's shady stuff. It's yeah, putting the the old adage, putting the inmates in charge of the the asylum. That's essentially what it would be. Uh, what would it would amount to? Or in this case, it would be allowing the drug cartels in Mexico to determine drug policy in Mexico. You know, um, it can be self serving, and human beings are self interested. We're self. You know, uh, we do what's in our best interest. Um, you know, and, you know, because we're fallen in sin, that's often perverse and directed in, in ways it shouldn't be. I, I have serious questions with this. Like I said, I, you know, because I'm a little bit more of a libertarian leaning, not, um, not everything, uh, libertarian, but I, I'm, I'm not still working on exactly what I think about decriminalizing drugs and what that would actually uh, um, look at. But I think so much of the problem of drug use in our society is a spiritual problem and it's, it's a pre-political problem and they keep trying to massage policies um, and try new approaches because all of these progressive policies are failing, right? This is in response to progressive policies. That's what we have to understand. UBI, minimum wage increase, uh, changes in, in laws and and, and structures pertaining to drug and alcohol abuse. These are in response to failing progressive problems. So we have to see that as the play that's happening. We're told one thing by progressives. Oh, if we implement the income tax, it's going to, it's going to be better for us all. If we're going to inc- um, in input the minimum wage it's going to be better for us all then when that fails to produce the intended results what is what do we do we double down oh well we haven't gone all the way um and that's the folly and the illogic of so much socialistic thinking so much progressive thinking and yeah i mean i wouldn't want to personally live in a community where all illicit drugs are made illegal uh, and where it's acceptable to do those things because i mean a lot of these communities where these are impl- being implemented they have serious problems um with with drug use and i've yet to see any really substantive um evidence that this is really going to do much to change that andrew so congratulations bc you're a dumpster fire <laughs> yeah and if you live in bc Despite what's going to happen as of January thirty first, please don't uh, don't snort a line of cocaine every day. Don't uh, don't shoot up on heroin every day, even though it's legal. Um, that won't be good for you. So no. moving on, moving on. Uh, I want to take a moment and tell you about my friends over at Rocklink Investment Partners because I can guarantee you, when they're managing your money, they are not snorting cocaine and shooting up heroin. They are sober minded and they are dealing with your money in a wise, careful, and fiscally responsible way. The team at Rocklink doesn't invest your money to satisfy a woke ESG goal or fall in line with the World Economic Forum, and they're certainly not smoking weed as they're doing it. They invest in great businesses that will protect and grow your wealth the old-fashioned way. Get out of the mainstream money and give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call at 905-631-5462 or send them an email, info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink.com. I can't, I can't overstate that the guys at Rocklink will not be under the influence of illegal drugs as they're handling your money. You can trust them. Please yeah. do so. Let's move on. The second story is... So, so the second story... It's a heartbreaking story. story. It is, and really the, the, the beginnings of it go all the way back to December of 2020, and then there was a, a little bit of a gap between charges laid and now charges dropped. 
And so we're going to touch down in December 2020, and then we're going to touch down recently. So this is from a Toronto Sun article back in December 2020, which we've linked as well. So this is from the Sun, quote, Toronto police said that on May 11th, security guards working at Toronto General Hospital had a physical interaction with a patient of the hospital. The patient, Stephanie Warner, went into medical distress during the incident, said the Toronto police. The patient was later pronounced deceased at Toronto Western Hospital on Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. Now, almost seven months later, this is in December, two of the four security officers, Amanda Roas Silva, 42 of Stouffville, and Shane Hutley, 35 of Brome, Brown, Broham, I don't know how to pronounce that name. I've never seen that place before, but it's probably somewhere around the GTA. They face charges of manslaughter and criminal negligence causing death. So remember, this is in December of 2020. The charges came after a lengthy investigation by Toronto Police Detective Brandon Price. On Facebook, The Sun continues, Stephanie's sister, Denise Warner, wrote, quote, while devastated to hear my worst nightmare come true, I'm extremely thankful for the decisive actions taken by the Toronto Police Service in arresting and charging two of the security guards involved in the death of my sister, end quote. Denise had complained to police she did not know where Stephanie was for 11 days. 11 days, did no idea where her sister was. In a memo to staff mm. shared with the son, Kevin Smith, University Health Network president and CEO, said the, quote, tragic death was upsetting and saddening, and they are fully cooperating and supportive of police investigation. Let's fast forward here. This is January 12th of this year. So remember, January 12th was my birthday. Supposed to be a wonderful day, and it was a wonderful <laughs> day for me. I celebrated it with friends. But Happy apparently birthday it was again. Yeah, it wasn't a wonderful day for justice. So this comes from now, I, I will say, even though the Canadian Pravda Corporation, which we which you might know is the CBC, mm-hmm. is funded by the state and is their propaganda arm. Kudos to them for not only breaking this story, but for actually revealing the footage that would be very, very damning to the security guards. So this comes from the C, but I'm still going to call them the CPC because they're government funded left wing propaganda. This comes from the CPC, quote, in a surprise move by an Ontario judge on November 22nd, which is about two months ago, the case against the guards has been quashed and the trial that was supposed to begin this May struck from the docket. The two officers, again, Amanda Roas Silva and Shane Hutley, had been charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence in Warner's death, charges they denied, saying they only used the force necessary to gain control of her. Now those charges have been dropped after a judge concluded there wasn't enough evidence to take the case to trial and the Crown will not be appealing this. That's despite the available video footage Two security staff who testified the accused placed weight on her upper body while she was held chest down. A forensic pathologist who testified Warner could still be alive had she not been restrained that day. And revelations one of the guards admitted he falsely claimed Warner threw the first punch. This is all the evidence brought in this hearing and the judge said, nope, not enough. Until now, much of the evidence in Warner's death has been covered by a publication ban. With the case quashed, CBC News can now report on the details that have never been made public and reveal the footage a jury will never see. The judge concluded on November 22nd, quote, and you you be the judge of this, there is no evidence that either accused applied any weight to the upper body beyond that associated with gaining control of and holding her hands or arms while handcuffs were being applied. We want to show you the video footage that will never be seen by a jury that, I mean, again, you, you look at the footage and you, you judge. I'll also say it is a little bit graphic. So Mm -hmm. before we go full on, if you have kids, you may want to pull them away. Um, but this, 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 this is the footage we have here. Mm -hmm. So you can see the camera pans over to that woman sitting down there in the blue, that's Stephanie Warner. And so you can see security guards, right? She's not wearing a mask. 
which is what this whole thing's about. Well, it's around her neck, it yeah. looks like, right? It's right. not on her face, so she's not wearing So here they are pulling the robe. Security putting on their her. hazmat suits. Right. And they're going to so so they're going to approach her and here she's getting up and they oh, they slam her against the wall. Here oh, oh and the oh, the camera pans away, which a security guard admitted that he panned away cuz he panicked and then when it continues there she is in a chair being wheeled away, totally non-responsive and there they are. A frail, a frail, sickly woman uh, restrained by three um, officers in this way. It's hardly the case of George Floyd when you're, you're talking about the size uh, differential between the, the people who are doing the restraining and um, the, the person who is being restrained. And yet it's funny that this sort of thing just was swept under the rug. Like, I didn't even hear about it. I didn't know about this story. Um, it, but it's also interesting that this was the charges were only brought after a lengthy investigation by Toronto police. So they looked into this. They did their research and they determined that what was done in this case was negligent. It was excessive force used against this woman but it was all done because she had a mask around her neck as though there was no other way for them to deal with this situation than physically restraining this uh, woman in in a pretty serious manner with i mean you, you saw the video there's four security guards there who are doing that um but I mean, she struggled. This woman, Stephanie Warner, she struggled with bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. and she was there at the hospital because she was feeling unwell. Now it was later found out that she mm -hmm. indeed did not have COVID nineteen. She didn't test positive. But this is this is what's going on. This this forty three year old woman who is unwell both physically mm -hmm. and mentally, yeah, is utterly crushed and literally crushed by these security guards. And the camera pans away, and we read you the evidence. You had other guards testifying, they putting weight on her upper body, a pathologist saying that if she wasn't treated the way she was, she would be alive. You have that video evidence that's turned away. All this is going on. Now, I want to read from the judge's decision. So this is Judge Sean Dumphy. This is his decision, and it's pathetic. Okay, It is, it is egregious. And it's utterly lawless. He says this in his official decision, which we've linked to as well. Quote, in the case of the charge of unlawful act manslaughter, there is no evidence establishing the objectively reasonable foreseeability of bodily harm of a non-trivial or non-transitory nature arising from actions of either accused person for which there is any admissible evidence. So there's no evidence that slamming her body up against the wall and then her hitting the ground and then piling on top of her. There's no evidence that would harm her. This is what this, this judge has to say. The accused were not medical experts and there is evidence of only limited knowledge of the condition of the deceased patient at the time of their interactions with her, which is precisely why they shouldn't have put on their hazmat robes and bombarded her because they're not medical experts. They're rent-a-cops who apparently were on a power trip. He continues, the actions attributed to the accused for which there is evidence amounted to restraining the deceased with minimal violence, the foreseeable consequences of which would be either trivial or transitory in terms of the potential for bodily harm, except that she died. So the judge's wrong on that so then he continues in the case of the criminal negligence causing death charge again there is no evidence that the actions of either accused were objectively capable of being found to be wanton or reckless in the sense of displaying a marked and substantial departure from the actions of a reasonable person in the situation of the accused again except for the fact that multiple security guards bombarded a 43-year-old smaller woman, woman with both physical and mental issues and then falling on top of her, except for that, of course. Uh, the actions undertaken to restrain the deceased for which there is any evidence were forceful but not violent and consistent with their training in restraining someone. That seems contradictory. 
so forceful but not violent that doesn't seem that doesn't seem to make sense especially when we look at the video there is no evidence from which it could be concluded that such actions were objectively wanton or reckless in light of the dynamic circumstances in which the actions were taken and the circumstances then known to them this is lawless this is wicked this is evil mm -hmm. this is this is now the, obviously this is different than the case of the police officers removing the child the new zealand from the parents to have the heart transplant and the blood transfusion these are different things but let mm -hmm. me say again unequivocally that this judge is wrong he's lawless he's disqualified himself as a judge should resign immediately and he shouldn't be left in charge of judging which apple pie is better than another apple pie at the local county fair he's in no position to judge anything he has shown that number one number two these officers should very much be charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence and they're clearly guilty despite the evidence and the fact that this whole thing isn't going to trial is ludicrous mm -hmm. and it is evil and it's thoroughly disgusting it, when you say despite the evidence you, are you saying in light of the evidence that we have that's uh, right yeah, yeah sorry. sorry well, dis well despite <laughs> despite all the, the evidence the judgment right? so yeah here we have all yeah. this evidence despite all of that the judge would still say yeah. oh, i don't see any evidence it's i mean they were they you know they just kind of they just pushed her a little bit and then she just mm -hmm. fell over and died it, it, the way it makes it sound yeah and we see the video and clearly they ram her up against the wall which then led to her being on the ground it's it's despicable it's and, the and, whole thing and, is and andrew just just it was it, it was the testimony of other security guards that they fell on top of her and then that yes. was the those were the serious injury injuries yes. that led so to they testified that, that and then you had the pathologist say that if they didn't put weight on her on the ground, she'd still be alive. Mm -hmm. So you had all this evidence as well, even though the camera panned away, all this yeah. evidence saying that this is what happened. And but the judge is saying there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if that is not the intention, one would imagine that neg criminal negligence would have been on the table uh, because, again, that doesn't really get to intentionality, but it's just, you know, are you conducting yourself in a negligent manner that leads to the harm of another individual. So, I mean, it is, it is kind of curious how this all came to be. And it is totally tragic that, I mean, for a mask, she in, from the video looks like a frail lady who has the mask around her chin, something that I know you've seen a million times, but to react in such a way that three guards have to put on hazmat suits and tackle her to the floor, um, whether they mean to or not, it's, it is, it should get people concerned about it. It should raise red flags. And the fact that the police in looking at all the evidence thought, you know, this is, this should, we should press charges based on everything that we're doing um, to have the judge Especially kind of considering these are the same police who would have enforced all the COVID mandates, right? So it's not like, it's not like all of this, it's not like this is the instance where it works in their favor, right? Yeah. The same police who would have punished people for not wearing masks, who would have kicked people out of mm -hmm. malls or restaurants, if their investigation is, wow, this is, this is serious, charges need to be brought. Yeah. If they conclude that, then clearly it's serious enough because if there was any way that they'd be able to wiggle out of this, they mm. would have. But the evidence seems to be so overwhelming that they bring it. That's also rather shocking that, that, that this happens in light of in light of them. It's just, yeah, it's yeah, it's a I tragic mean, it's a tragic incident. And I'm, you know, I don't know the intentions of the hearts of of the security officers. Um, it seems, you know, drastically overdone giving her circumstance her health um you know uh, and for the purpose that they were doing it um and then when you have kind of a little bit of the cover-up type things adding on to it, it 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 makes it even more fishy and more concerning um but i mean 
I don't know what else there is to add to that. It is truly uh, tragic. And I think you've said it all as far as, uh, you know, it is unjust. Now, we can be thankful that the just judge of heaven and earth will on the final day and in the final analysis, who knows all events and can read the intentions of people's hearts, he will be the just judge who renders a just verdict. And that's in light of events like this, that's something that we can put our hope and trust in. And yeah, our prayers just go out to the families for all those involved. And um, again, it just, it seems so reckless and so needless over, over a mask. She didn't even have COVID guys. You were treating her as though she was an infected, dangerous person to everybody else. She didn't even have COVID and your interaction with her killed her. That is, that is truly sad. I mean, something to be aware of as well, and, and this is something that's come out of the last three years, is that people like security guards, like public health officers, people that have badges and name tags that don't actually have any real legal authority, have been granted a, a super inflated superiority complex and a whole lot of power tripping. I mean, there are pastors who will tell you, or restaurant owners who will tell you about public health officials, bylaw officers that really have no authority, mm -hmm. that are walking around with such a big stick, like yeah. they have the full force of the law behind them. <laughs> yeah. Like they, like I remember my experience at Pearson when we flew in from mm -hmm. the United States, the public health officer there, that guy in the red vest, he, it just, he seemed to enjoy being able to say, I have this power and this authority and it's I can, petty tyrants. I can ask this. it is, yeah. and there's very, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who probably struggle with their own self-worth and self-identity, right? People who feel rather insignificant, who now have been given a huge amount of significance and power and authority, right? When you have people who are secure in their identity, secure in themselves, these are le these are the least likely people that are going to become absolute tyrants and bullies if you give them more power. But mm -hmm. if you take people who don't have that kind of security, these people who, are, who who feel insignificant, and then you give them power and authority, these are the people, and this is exactly what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. You're seeing people who, and again, I don't know the case. I don't know what's going on, but... I don't, I don't know if it's a security guard who tried to become a police officer, couldn't hack it as a police officer, and you see the way they respond. I mean, that's just it's, – it's, it's unbelievably sad and lawless that that happened to mm -hmm. this woman and to the Warner family. And the fact that the charges are dropped, you know, like you said, Matt, the only hope we have is like I read from Psalm 94 earlier, that even though you will have unjust judges – who will punish the innocent and vindicate the guilty. At the end of the day, we know that the Lord will dispense true justice to all in his time and his way. And this is the hope that believers can have. The hope we can mm -hmm. have, and this is why we're not social justice warriors, is we don't need to bring full justice in a utopia here to this no. earth. We can trust that at the end of the day, no one will get away with it. And mm -hmm. everyone will. everyone's sins will have to be paid for. Either the elect of God have had their sins paid for by the sacrifice of Christ and we glory in that, mm -hmm. or the enemies of God who die in their hatred and disobedience to the Son will pay for it. And these these guards and this judge, if they don't indeed turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, then someday the just penalty for these sins will be dealt by a just judge. And that really is the greatest hope that we can have when we think about this story, while we can still be completely broken over mm. not just her death, but the utter miscarriage of justice as well. Yeah, man, what a crazy week it's been. I'm sure there's many of you who probably wanted us to cover the events going on at Davos this week. I know uh, there's a lot going on that we are definitely interested in, but don't fear not. We have a plan, a plan for um, covering Davos as it uh, as we enter we want to wait next... for all the globalist yeah. muck and mire <laughs> to be done before we bring you yeah. an awful bitter cake. Of, of 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 globalist here and we will we devote our time to that cake. yeah we want the yeah. whole cake in all of its horror <laughs> to be brought to you
Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, for those of you who were maybe thinking we were going to jump in that this week, uh, I just want to encourage you that we will be jumping into it, Lord willing, next week. And uh, we'll be bringing out, you know, just how foolish globalist elites are um, and how so much of what we're seeing coming down and the local level is conjured up on <laughs> by these global oligarchs uh, in in forums like uh, Davos. So it's been a week of uh, reflecting on dangerous moral hazards created by our foolish governors, Andrew. So I hopefully it wasn't too depressing for everybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, I hope you are encouraged, as you said, Andrew, that the sovereign Lord is in control of all the events in history, and he's working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Also, as we say at the end of every program, Andrew, it's in Christ that we are set free and we're called to stand firm, therefore, and not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Until next time, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit our website at www.LibertyCoalitionCanada.com.